Yeah, kids are dismissed, but are also welcome to be here. That's all right. Oh, it's getting dramatic out there already, huh? <laughs> That's all right. All right. So, welcome again. Welcome again. All right. Um, I'm trying to find a way to buy us a little bit of time. Tell a joke. Anyone got a joke to tell? A pastor joke? A bad, a bad joke? How about that? Man, I'm all sweaty. I'm all from that singing. But you all know that doesn't mean anything's new, right? It's just, it just means we're together. All right. Hey, I am so excited to uh, introduce the guest speaker for our retreat. Uh, someone that's become very dear to me. Um, this is Brother Scott Sauls, who's a pastor in Nashville. And, um, you know, Scott's uh, really, he, he has become a well-known speaker, pastor, preacher, um, author, whose books have really reached and ministered to many, many people. Um, but... What I most appreciate about this brother for all his gifts and insights is just his humility, his transparency, the way that he ministers out of his own brokenness, right? Because the grace of God frees us to do that, right? We can be authentic and true and real and raw and the mess that we really are before the plain view of others but secure in Christ and being changed in Christ and being healed in Christ, all these things. So I'm so grateful for this brother who models that for me and uh, has taught me so much. Uh, you really have, Scott, and uh, a person that lives the gospel and brings the gospel through in his ministry. So uh, when we were considering uh, who we might have to come and lead us and bless us at this retreat, you know, Scott was... Uh, someone that just came to mind is, ah, I would love for our folks just for a weekend to get exposed, uh, not just to his teaching ministry, but to his heart. And so I'm glad uh, to be able to share this gift uh, with all of you. And so we'll hear from him three times today, uh, right now, and then tonight, and then tomorrow morning. Uh, so how about we all welcome our brother Scott together. Do you mind if I do this? This thing is, you ever have something just staring you at the face? It's like this big pointing finger. You. <laughs> you. <laughs> so here, I'm going to point it at you now. <laughs> so thanks for that, Duke. Um, it, was, it was such an easy uh, yes to this invitation. Uh, there's such, you may not know this, but there's such great gossip about your church family. Uh, outside of your local context. <laughs> and you're thinking, they don't know us out there. Um, but there's such great gossip. Um, you know, in so many ways, your church is, um, is on the leading edge of our denomination, which is very, very late to the party. 
uh, on some things that have really become the core values of, of your church community. And, and so just know that, that uh, your impact uh, spans beyond Washington, D.C. And, 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 you know, the neighborhoods that you serve. Uh, we're so grateful as well for uh, your pastor, Duke, who has courageously and prophetically and lovingly uh, spoken in to various spaces where his kind of voice is absolutely necessary uh, on subjects such as the essential uh, call to diversity in the body of Christ, but also uh, help, helping so many of us stay politically sane uh, in the environment that we're in right now, and just appreciate your uh, your your thoughtful, uh, non-melodramatic uh, approach to uh, a a subject that has become extremely melodramatic and divisive and and outrageously filled with outrage. Uh, and and, and uh, I can't imagine what it's like to live in Washington D.C. these days. Uh, but uh, thank you for your leadership, uh, just as a church, and and thank you for your hospitality already having me today. So uh, what I want to do, uh, really because it's, been my, it's my assignment, uh, I, I didn't really get a choice in this. Duke said I want you to talk about friendship. So we're going to talk about friendship this weekend. Um, and uh, are, are you lonely? Are you ever lonely? Um, me too. Me too. Um, you know what the first uh, negative thing God spoke over his creation was? Um, Remember when he said this, it is not good uh, for a man to be alone? And I don't think that's necessarily a statement about marriage. Marriage can be one of the answers uh, to that human problem. It is not good to be alone, but I think that it, it's more of a universal statement. Uh, that it's not good for any human being to be without companionship. It's not good for any human being to be in a situation where she or he is not known and, and giving the opportunity to, to know others. And I think that the first answer that God has given to that human problem is not marriage. It's the church. It's the local church where everyone, uh, single, single again, married, happy in marriage, lonely in marriage, uh, happy outside of marriage, lonely outside of marriage, um, can come together and know and be known. And so I, I want to focus on that this morning. Uh, and th the important thing to realize is that that defeating loneliness is, 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 is at the heart of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Really, the, the essence of hell is to be all alone, is to be completely isolated. And what Jesus wants to do is take us out of hell. <laughs> and so what I'd like to do is read um, on my iPhone, because uh, I forgot my Bible, which is upstairs. I still use the paper one, but uh, love these apps. This is going to be John uh, chapter 13, <coughs> verses 31 through 38, and then I'll flip over to chapter 15 for a couple more verses. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, 
So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Then over to chapter 15, and we'll just look at verses 12 through 14 there. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. So, Thomas Wolfe said this. The whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that the sense of loneliness far from being a rare and curious phenomenon, peculiar to myself and a few other solitary people, loneliness is the central and inevitable fact of human existence. Technology connects us now more than ever. Uh, There are people now in Nashville, Tennessee, who know about what's going on this morning because I put it up on social media. Yeah, but there was once a time, do you remember that time when we didn't carry devices? When social media did not exist. But now we have instant access to each other through text messaging, social media, Snapchat, so on and so forth. But we are more isolated than we've ever been before. You know, Forbes magazine came out with, a, um, with an article uh, based on a... Uh, a study, a a vast survey that was done about loneliness. And one of the significant conclusions of that study was when the the more we use social media, the more alone we will feel, the more we will experience the ache of loneliness. There's actually a diagnosis now uh, in psychiatric offices called Facebook depression. It is a clinical term, Facebook depression. You know, this, this sense of isolation, this sense of alienation that we get when we look at the highlight reels of other people's lives, thinking, well, the grass is greener over there, must be nice for them, and, 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 and we get caught in this sort of compare and compete uh, dynamic in our hearts not realizing that they're on the other side comparing themselves to us and also feeling inferior because what we're doing is giving them the highlight reel of our lives. And so we're all in this loneliness place together. So I live in Nashville, Tennessee. We've been there for about five and a half years. And uh, the church I pastor has uh, a, 
a good number of people that are involved in the music industry. Artists, songwriters, um, executives, and so on. And the other night, I was at a, uh, it was a fundraiser, and there was a featured artist there whose name many of you would, would probably recognize. Uh, well, he, this is an artist who regularly fills football stadiums, sells out three consecutive nights of a 50,000-seat football stadium, and that's his life. And he was playing uh, on the stage of this, this little intimate gathering, and I happened to know somebody who works for him. It's actually the person who discovered him. Uh, and I texted my friend, who's a member of our church, and I said, you know, your, your buddy sounds really great, uh, up close and intimate. And I get this response back, the poor guy. And I said, what are you talking about, the poor guy? And the response back was, I just got a phone call from him a few nights ago at about 2 a.m. after he played his third consecutive sellout show in this major stadium. He called me at 2 o'clock in the morning to tell me this. Once again, I've had tens of thousands of people eating out of the palm of my hands for two solid hours, all of their eyes, all of their hearts fixed on me, and I'm convinced that every one of these three nights I was the loneliest person in the stadium. You see, because when we exchange friends for fans and followers, we miss the whole point of what God has called us into as human beings created in the image and likeness of a God who is both one and three. We can't be vitally connected to a communal God and, 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 and think that we're going to flourish and thrive when we are not living as communal people. And this sense of loneliness and this ache that we feel, when we do feel lonely, it's not because there's something wrong with us. It's because there's something right with us. And, and, and maybe it's God calling us to a, a higher way of living that involves others. You know, this, this negative word that God spoke into his good creation it is not good to be alone. I don't know if you've recognized this. You've probably been taught this. He spoke those words into paradise. He spoke those words into his perfect world. There was something imperfect about his perfect world, and that was that there was an isolated human. And so what I want to do this morning is just sort of um, provide the bones or the skeleton of, you know, or the building blocks of, of what friendship from the perspective of Jesus uh, could look like for us. And I suspect that, that there's a lot of celebrating that, that, that many of you will do in your hearts as you hear me unpack these thoughts from Jesus because you're ex I'm, I'm already observing some of these realities going on even in my short time here since last night. But the first is transparency. You know, Jesus says, I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So there's this, there's this uh, self-disclosure dynamic about 
Jesus, who's the perfect human. The sharing of secrets, making yourself vulnerable, letting yourself be known. And if we're all honest, there, there's a huge part of us that is very, very afraid of this kind of invitation to allow ourselves to be known. So there's this French philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre. And uh, he's very depressing to, to, to read Sartre. He's an existentialist, and the beauty of the existentialist is they understand the fallen human condition perhaps more than any other group, perhaps more than a lot of Christians. They, they understand, you know, you've got Sartre, you've got Camus, you've got Nietzsche, there's, there's this whole cadre of existentialist philosophers. They see the dark side of reality, but they don't have the hope. And there's this little chapter that, um, that Sartre wrote in, in his book called Being and Nothingness, and the, the name of the chapter is The Look. And he tells this sort of fictitious story about a man who's sitting alone in a park, and then he senses uh, uh, somebody in the distance staring at him. And he looks, and he can't quite see, you know, the person's face or, or the person's eyes, but he sees kind of the silhouette of this person, and he's, he's certain that this person is, this stranger is staring at him, and he experiences this incredible amount of, 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 of anxiety and terror just by being looked at. I mean, you, you felt this, like walking the streets, right? And somebody makes eye contact with you for just maybe one second too long. And you feel like, why, why are they looking at me? What, what do they know? You know, have they found me out? You know, you get that text message that says, can we talk? You know, immediately your, your heart goes to, oh, no, I'm in trouble. I'm found out. I'm discovered. Right? I mean, that's immediately where we go. Maybe they just want to give us a hug. <laughs> Maybe they just want to tell us that something we said or did has changed their life. But we immediately think they're going to shame us and condemn us and reject us and we're exposed. We're going to be rejected. We're, we're known now, and we're not going to be loved because we're known now. And that's the terror that this man in Sartre's chapter feels. And then he realizes it's a mannequin, uh, which was weird to me because how often have you seen a mannequin in a park, just hanging out in a park, right? But, but when he realizes it's not a true human, he experiences this flood of relief because of the terror, uh, as Sartre says, of being underneath the gaze. We don't like to be looked at. We don't want to be dissected. And so this is an existentialist philosopher tapping into this fear that we all have of being truly known. If you know me, you are surely going to reject me. You're going to exclude me. You're going to write me off. You're not going to take me seriously anymore. If, you, if I let you into more than just the highlight reel of my life, half of which is fake. See, so we, we become social chameleons. You know what a chameleon is, right? It's this, this little reptile that has this incredible, it's like uh, Harry Potter's invisibility cloak almost, right? Like the chameleon can change its own colors to blend into its environment. So I, it, I could turn completely the color of this screen and you wouldn't see me if I were a chameleon. And then I could turn the, com the color of this, this, uh, this microphone stand or this um, speaker stand 
uh, music stand, whatever it is, the stand, this pointy finger here, I could turn the color of, of, of this stand and you wouldn't see me, even though I'd be right here. And, and we become like this. We change our colors based on the environment. I've got my, the person I am at work, the person I am at home with just me and my computer at 1 a.m., the person I am around the dinner table or, or the person I am on the athletic field. Five different versions of me. Disintegrated person, a person without integrity. You know, integrity is a word that we associate with honesty. Integrity is, is integration. It's, it's being a whole person and the same person in every environment. And, and so few of us have the courage for that. And instead, we come, become image managers, self-image managers, right? Uh, we, we, we manage and protect our brand, right? So I remember the first ministry assignment that I had uh, uh, out of... Uh, Seminary. I was an associate pastor at a church in the Midwest. I actually got a text message from the, from the, the guy that brought me on the, just this morning, just as, as we were singing. And uh, I can remember every Monday morning we would have staff meeting and the conversation would always go to the football games from the weekend before. And I'm a basketball guy. Uh, I don't dial into football until the postseason. And I, I love the, the postseason of football, but I, I just don't pay attention. Sorry if you're a football person and you're offended by that. Um, but I'm a March Madness kind of guy, right? And, and I'm, a, I'm a tennis guy. I grew up playing basketball and tennis, and so I watched the, the Grand Slam tennis tournament. But I'm not a football guy. But because everybody was talking about football, I felt this pressure to fake it. And to, to pretend, like, and I, I would read the sports pages back when they had this thing called a newspaper. I, I would read, read the sports page. I would, I would, you know, check in on the scores. And, and I would really, put, honestly, put myself, as a pastor, putting myself under the pressure of, of initiating a conversation. You know, how about those Kansas City Chiefs, you know, sticking it to, you know, the Boston Red Sox? You know, it was, it was kind of... Uh, <laughs> But there was a point at which I felt like, you know what, why am I, I'm in a room full of people who believe the gospel. And I say I believe the gospel, and I feel like I'm going to be rejected if I don't engage uh, with the football conversation like a professional football conversationalist. <laughs> but we feel this pressure, right? We don't want to look stupid. We don't want to look like we haven't been paying attention to the thing that seems to be important to everybody else. And yet you have the Apostle Paul who, after he becomes united with Christ, and only after he becomes united with Christ, reputation consciousness is really not part of his vocabulary anymore. You know, prior to knowing Christ, his whole life was built on, on his brand, you know, far ahead of my, my fellow young rabbis, you know, equivalent of an Ivy League education, you know, well-educated in both Jewish and, and Greek literature and classics and so on. He, Paul could bring it in his early years, 
And he made sure that you knew it. He was the man. He wanted you to know he was the man. He writes about that, you know, sort of autobiographically in Philippians. And he calls it all an expletive that we're not willing to put in our English translations. But he uses a four-letter word to, to refer to his former life of reputation building. And... and and, and basing his identity on his own righteousness and on his own performance. But then after the fact, <laughs> you, you see this wonderful progression happening of, of, of increasing self-disclosure and transparency, and, and I don't have to take myself so seriously anymore because Jesus has taken me seriously. And so at the beginning of his ministry, it's interesting to, to see the clues of Paul coming alive to, to, to this invitation to be real. At the beginning of his ministry, he refers to himself as Paul, an apostle. Then later on, he's Paul, the least of the apostles. Later on, he's the least of all saints. And then toward the end, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And then after that statement, he jumps into this, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, speculative, you know, and, and yet strongly convicted statement that the reason why Christ saved a guy like me was so that you would know that his mercy could reach anyone. And then he bursts into worship. Like there's, there's this, this, what Tim Keller calls this blessed self-forgetfulness. He doesn't care what you think about him anymore because he knows what God thinks about him through Christ. No condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, no separation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're exposed. You're naked before God, but you don't have to be ashamed. Because he's covered it. Transparency creates community with one another as well. It helps everyone feel not alone. This is why movements like Alcoholics Anonymous have been successful in the lives of millions of people. Because you've got one person coming up saying, I've got a problem. I've got an addiction. You know, C.S. Lewis says this is how friends or friendships are born. When one person looks at another person and says, oh, you too? And, and it is incredibly powerful, isn't it, when the you too is, is not around our accomplishments necessarily, even though that's legitimate. You can talk about your accomplishments. It's fine. But when the you too is around, wait, you struggle with anxiety too? Wait, you're afraid of losing your job also? Wait, you deal with white guilt too? Wait. You struggle as a non-white person, you know, uh, because of the disadvantages that exist in a, in a culture that's run by white people? You too? You want to fix that too? You want to be part of the solution to that too? Yeah, that's how friends are born. You're, you're addicted too? I spent, um, I'm five and a half years now into my current assignment, and... Two years in, I, I got up, and, and in one of my messages, I said, you know, I'm going to take a risk, and I, it was a risk of self-disclosure to my entire congregation, and, and I said, well, I guess you know me well enough to, for me to be honest now, and I shared with them various seasons where I've personally gone through anxiety and depression, sometimes debilitating, sometimes where I've lost 30 pounds, debil debilitating. Um, and one of the older men in our congregation that 
I'm intimidated by because he's like one of these guys that sort of runs the world, like a gate. He's like a gatekeeper type, right? Washington D.C. You know what gatekeepers are. And this dude, like, I just kept my distance from him. He came up to me and he said, "I want to tell you something." And I was like, "Oh no, he's going to start a movement to push me out of the church." He says, "I want to, I want to tell you something," <laughs> and 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 he said, he said. I think you're a pretty good communicator, but I want you to know I'm, I'm, I'm completely unimpressed by that. When you started talking about your personal demons today, today's the day you became my pastor. I've been waiting for two and a half years for you to become my pastor, and today's the day you became my pastor. You know, I wonder if in the end, you know, when I read things like 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh and the power of God that's made perfect through weakness. I, I, and he's so transparent there. I wonder if in the end it's going to be my weakness more than my sermons, more than my books, more than my vision that's going to contribute to, to a better world. I wonder. So transparency, key. I spent most of my time this morning just on that. Just a couple more thoughts. Diversity is the second one. I'm going to hit that a little, little more um, fully tonight. But I don't know if you counted, but Jesus says the word you 36 times in the scriptures that, that I just read. And every single time it's a plural. Every single time. And, you know, this is the American mistake. We read the Bible as if it were written to me. When the Bible is written to us. This is where southern vernacular comes in handy. Virtually every time the New Testament says you, it says y'all. And this is no exception. By this, all people will know that y'all are my disciples if y'all have love for one another. Eugene Peterson says that one of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, are instead of my, us instead of me. You see this all over the place. You see it politically. Do you ever think about the fact that Jesus' 12 disciples who walked closely with one another as brothers for three years included Simon, the anti-government zealot, and Matthew, the tax collector, the small-slash-no-government guy, the libertarian-ish person, and the guy who was in everybody's pockets. Matthew did not quit his job, as far as we know. Simon did not quit being a zealot. Do you know the one gospel writer who saw it as being important enough to point out the fact that Matthew was a tax collector and Simon was a zealot. Just one of the gospel writers points that out, and it was Matthew. See, because in the gospel, in Christ, you realize that your gospel affiliation supersedes your political affiliation. And... If I am a Christian, if I identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet I feel more of a kindred spirit with those who share my politics but not my faith than I do with those who share my faith but not my politics, it's a sign of a problem. 
It's a sign that I am not listening. That, that Christ is the one who calls us not to just be the best kinds of friends, but the best kinds of enemies. To the end that, as far as it depends on us, we have no enemies. And that certainly applies inside the kingdom of God. You see the personality differences among the disciples. You've got Peter, the bull in the china shop, and you've got John, who's this sanguine, humble, kind, beloved disciple, right? And they are part of Jesus's three. They're not just part of the 12. These two are part of Jesus's inner ring of three. Social status. David, the, the sheep keeper, and Jonathan, the prince. You know, it could go on and on. Our differences can bring out the best in us. Unfortunately, we live in an a, a day and age where our differences bring out the very worst in us, where everybody's looking for something or someone to be offended by. But if, if while I was yet a sinner, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and if that was the moment at which Christ said, I am going to make that group of people my bride, when we were rebelling, when we were running the other way, when we were giving him the middle finger in the rearview mirror, that's when he died for us. And, and, and this being the context in which we live and move and have our being, Christians of all people should be the least offensive and least offendable people in the world. Difference becomes an asset instead of a liability under Jesus. You know, C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves talks about this. He says, in each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles is dead, so C.S. Lewis had two really tight friends, Charles and Ronald, and they'd get together all the time. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a joke by Charles. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. True friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and a third by a fourth, and so on. But friendship not only can bring out the best of, uh, in us in diverse contexts, it can also confront the worst in us. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answers, will you lay down your life for me? The rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let me tell you a little bit about you, Peter. Let me tell you a little bit about your true commitment to loyalty. It's about that thin, under pressure. You're going to cave, and you're going to cave again, and then you're going to cave again. True friends are sometimes confrontational. Always from a humble place. Always from a humble place. But true friends are sometimes need to point the finger <laughs> at each other and say, you're out of line with the gospel. Do you remember Galatians 2, where Paul talks about how he had to confront Peter in front of everybody for his xenophobia and for his fear of man and for his excluding people that Jesus embraced, for his amnesia about the fact that if you're on the narrow path, then you're... you're, you're your embrace has to be broad. The more conservative you are about the Bible, the more you believe the Scriptures to be 100% true, the more liberal you're going to be in the way that you love. 
So <coughs> when I moved to New York City, I um, was in New York for several years before moving to Nashville. And uh, I was called there to do several things, but one of the things that I was called to do was to lead a team of about 25 staff members. This is a large church there. And um, it was a very diverse team, very diverse ethnically, very diverse socioeconomically, uh, very diverse politically, and, 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 and so on. And um, one of the guys on that team really didn't like me and was really upset that they hired me. And he let me know that from the very beginning. And so I said, well, let's, let's go out and grab a beer together and let's, let's talk about this and let's talk about where we're coming from, see if we can understand each other. So it's one of those two pastors walk into a bar jokes, right? <laughs> and we ended up yelling at each other. Uh, like just yelling at each other and you know that kind of stuff and 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 we both kind of leave quietly just with this sunken feeling in the pit of our stomach and he comes because we're so different and he, he comes in to the office the next day knocks on my door and says hey do you have a few minutes and I said yeah sure what you want to keep fighting and he says, well, I was up all night last night. And I said, yeah, I was too. And he said, what kept coming to mind was the image of two pieces of sandpaper. If you take two gritty pieces of sandpaper and you rub them together, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's a very uncomfortable situation, right? And the, the heat goes up uh, when that happens. And the friction is almost unbearable. But... Over time, what happens to both of those pieces of sandpaper? They both become smoother. And he looks at me, and he, and he grabs my shoulders, and he says, Philippians 1.6, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I am committed to that confidence with respect to you, and I pray that you will be committed to that confidence with respect to me. It's like That was a... That was a really important moment for me. That was a moment where God taught me what friendship is supposed to look like. Membership in a local church is messy. It means joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus embarks on a journey toward a better future in Christ together. You know, one writer says that Christians are a band, a tribe of natural enemies who could not get along with one another outside of Christ. Natural enemies who come to love one another for Jesus' sake. Right? Because he doesn't just call us to be the best kinds of friends. He calls us to be the best kinds of enemies to the end that as far as it depends on us, we don't have any more enemies. How we view the local church Jesus says this is how you should view the local church. Y'all did not choose me. I chose you. He chose us for himself, but in choosing us for himself, he also chose us for each other. You don't get to choose your family members. I love that, that Pastor Duke referred to 
us as family earlier on this morning. That was the word he used. You don't get to choose your family members. You say, well, I chose my wife. No, you didn't. My wife has been married to five different men, and they've all been me. <laughs> they've all been me. The church is a family, not a consumer good. It is the incubator where we are called to learn love so that we can then go out into the world and love as we've been loved. The word love is in the text, and that's the third one. Love is in the text eight times. It's the identifying mark of Christianity. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The word there is agape. Same word that's used in the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which Paul wasn't thinking about wedding ceremonies when he wrote that chapter, by the way. Love is patient, love is kind, and so on. He wasn't thinking about cross-stitch. He, he, he was delivering a sharp rebuke to the Corinthian church because the love, the, the description of love represented everything that the Corinthians were not. But he's calling them to it. You know, the, the agape of friendship is fiercely loyal. You know, there are a lot of songs about love. You know, Tina Turner sang, What's love got to do with it? Got to do with it. What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love but a sweet old fashioned notion? So there's a sentimental view of love. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. I feel for you. I feel for you, and on the basis of that, I think I love you. But I think Pat Benatar is the one who got it right. Love is a battlefield. Bonhoeffer, he who loves his dream of community, Bonhoeffer said, more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the Christian community. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren. But love is patient, kind, keeps no record of wrongs, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Interesting that Paul would start his letter, his first letter to the Corinthians, whom he's extremely frustrated with, with identity statements. You're saints. You're my brothers. You're my sisters. He establishes memory of the relationship. He reestablishes memory of, of the relationship. And from that place, from that safe place, he calls them out. He encourages them. To encourage is to put courage into somebody else. So one of our, our, our friends uh, and writer Ann Voskamp talks about how words have immense power. I mean, it was words that spoke galaxies into existence, right? Words have power. Anybody who says sticks and stones may break my bones, but words uh, can, can never hurt me has probably never been insulted, never been shamed, never been called. Words are powerful. In the negative sense, they're also powerful in the positive sense. One of the things Anne says is, always speak words that make souls stronger. 
You know, Jesus is going away, the disciples are afraid, and he gives them courage with words. Little children, a term of endearment. I have loved you. It's not you who will lay down your life for me, but it's me who will lay down my life for you. You are my friends. There's this anonymous you know, statement that's just masterful. Be kind, because every person you meet is fighting a hard, hidden battle. Every person you meet is fighting a hard, hidden battle. Instead of, in this culture of outrage that we live in, instead of catching everybody doing wrong, let's, let, let's be different. Let's be countercultural. Let's start catching people doing good. Let's start here. Catch each other doing good. And then let that be the energy that we can go out into our places of work and our neighborhoods and, 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 and everywhere else and catch people doing good to be the daughters and the sons of encouragement. Bring Barnabas into 21st century America because our friend is the friend above all friends. Jesus gives us the emotional wealth that we need for offering friendship. This is my command, he says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. You know, Emerson said, it's one of the blessings of old friends that you can afford to be stupid with them. You can afford to be stupid with your friends. And what kind of friend do we have in Jesus? Let's go back to Peter, and I'll end with this. Remember, he says, you're going to deny me three times. You, this whole notion that you're going to lay down your life for me? No, you got it completely backwards, bro. You're going to deny me three times. And, and we have that, that tragic denial depicted multiple times in the Gospels. The one that I can't get out of my memory is how Mark describes it. When the women show up at the tomb and Jesus is risen and the angel of the Lord encounters the women, one of the things that the angel of the Lord says is, go tell the others and Peter that I'm coming to them. Talk about a friend. Talk about putting courage into somebody. Talking about always speaking words that make souls stronger. You make sure that the one who fell the hardest, you make sure that the one who feels most ashamed, you make sure the one who is doubting whether or not he ever knew me at all, that he knows that his friend with a capital F is coming to him. You see, your starting point as a Christian, Peter, is well done, good and faithful servant. That's the difference between Jesus and moralistic religion. Moralistic religion says work hard, perform, don't screw up too badly, and you might get the well done at the end. The gospel says you start with the well done, and nothing can ever take the well done away from you. Even three bold public denials, Peter. The well done hangs over you. God has moved your judgment day from the future to the past so that at every moment, in your best moment, when you're being crucified upside down for me out of your courage or when you're denying me three times out of your cowardice, I love you just the same. I love you just the same because he's called us friends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you went first, 
that you don't just tell us to live transparently or pursue diversity in our community life. You don't just tell us, here's what love is, so go and love. You first come to us as the friend above all friends, making yourself so vulnerable to us, even knowing that we would use that vulnerability against you. Valuing and treasuring diversity so much that you came for every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people group. Even for us over here at the ends of the earth that you spoke about. Thank you that you so loved the world. That you so loved us. That you gave. Amen.